An American Airlines MD-82 is flying from Dallas to Arkansas when something goes wrong. What caused this flight to have an eventful landing? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And, and I'm we have, Oh, yeah. I was like, we hey, have? He jumped in. Yeah. <laughs> no, He's back. back. He's back. He's in town, so he uh, joined us for this one. For Fantastic. no particular reason other than that. And it's great. Because yes. it's fun to hear my voice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad someone thinks so. <laughs> he, he road tripped out here, so he got to listen to a lot of our episodes, or yes, most recent ones, actually. Yeah, I needed to catch up. It was really nice. Great company, by the way, if you take a road trip, this yeah. is a good thing to do. Just listen to a podcast. It, it makes time go by faster. Yeah, it does. We have a few yeah. uh, truckers that listen to us all the time yeah. while they're, they're on the road. And have demanded that we keep up with their five episodes <laughs> a day rate. They're five a day. Yeah. That's a lot. Listen to five. <laughs> okay. Five more episodes a day. Yeah. <laughs> if we made enough to do that, well, we still couldn't do it. But no, no. <laughs> there's, there's no way. no way. I don't even think we could do one a day, but a couple a week could probably be more possible if we were doing this full time. Yeah, that's real optimistic. <laughs> if of we you. were doing this full time, yeah. If this was like our job, right? Yeah, sure. But like, not no, not now. Yeah, I don't think there's any patrons we have to thank. I don't think so. I don't think we have any new ones. No. If you increase your patronage, thank you. We appreciate that. I want to give a quick shout out to Paige, our wonderful editor, who decided to edit everything. Like mad. Oh, it was so great. Thank you so we much. We are so caught up and it's so great. Oh, did she man. go back and redo some of the episodes? Through? No, just no. did uh, the most recent That's helping great. us now going forward. I'm yeah. glad I got to meet her recently. But yeah. like, meet them. Yes. yes. Recently, I apologize. No, it's okay. And uh, I really enjoyed meeting Paige. Yeah. yeah. Um, last week we recorded 154. And 153. And they edited it in like two days. Well, yep. and they edited back both of them. Yeah, wow. back to back. And I was like, Done. oh. They're already so uploaded much. and ready yep. to post over the next couple oh, of weeks. Man, so Somebody nice. has got stamina. I know. <laughs> so thank you, Paige. Yes. Thank you, Paige. I don't think we have any new patrons. Stories of the month. Spooky stories. I like As always. Spooky stories. Spooky stories. Spooky stories. Because guess cover. what? It's spooky season. That it is. What Hopefully kind of- at this point we may have possibly released a listener's episode. Maybe. We well, actually have to we record have, it first. <laughs> we have so many stories now. They keep rolling in. Andrew, calm down. <laughs> yeah. You have officially caught up with David and <laughs> Lieutenant Spot. Yeah. <laughs> hey, by the way, I, I would love to meet this Lieutenant Spot. It sounds <laughs> well, like an interesting person. We'll tell you more about that later. <laughs> yes. Because we have some following stuff Following you on, the, on, the, uh, on all the podcasts, and you guys talked about, uh, talk about him. I got to tell you, it sounds like it's somebody I'd love to chat with. Yeah, right? Which, interesting actually, person. we have questions from both Lieutenant Spock and Andrew. Oh, okay. good. To answer yeah. at the end of this? Oh, yep. good. Okay. So, We've got, this will be a, a good one. Yes. Then. Okay. okay. I think that's all the housekeeping. Kept it keeping. Housekeeping. <laughs> <laughs> that was hard. Wow. It's been a long day, guys. I'm sorry uh, if I'm a little nasally. I'm still going <clears> through the... And I've got stuff. the coughs. Yeah, it's okay. I it's, a little bit. It's a the thing. congestion. No big deal. All right. So, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering American Airlines Flight 1420. Thanks to... Thanks to Brett again. Again. Thank you, Brett, for recommending this one. This accident occurred on June 1st of 1999. This was a McDonnell Douglas MD-82 with a tail number November 215 Alpha Alpha. 
The MD-82 is, we've talked about MD-80s in the past, but it is a descendant of the DC-9 family. It is a much longer version with newer engines, bigger engines, updated avionics, and they flew for a long time. American only got rid of them a couple of years ago. So the MD-82 was newer at the time, but not new. And it's a descendant of the DC-9, so it still has quite the heritage behind it. And don't get confused later when I bring up the DC-9 manual, because it is applicable. Yes. Technically, the airplane's original designation was the DC-9-82. Oh, well, okay. It was the 82 variant of the DC-9, but because McDonald... Still on the DC, so they just changed the name. Yeah, exactly. This was a flight from Dallas-Fort Worth to Little Rock, Arkansas. 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 The captain for this flight was Richard Bushman. He was 48 years old at the time. He had 10,234 hours total, of which 5,518 hours were on the MD-80. The first officer for the flight was Michael Oregel. I don't know if it's Oregel or Origel. <laughs> it's spelt Origel. Or Origel. Origel? I don't know. I don't know. That makes a little more sense. I was going to yes. say Oregano. Flake <laughs> <laughs> stare I just got. Oh my gosh. <laughs> he was 35 years old at the time. He had 4,292 hours total, of which 182. He was very new on the airplane. But enough experience. I mean, 4,000 hours is nothing. Oh, yeah, no, he still had quite a few hours of experience overall. The flight crew were on the first day of a three-day trip. They had started the day in Chicago O'Hare, flying from Chicago O'Hare to Salt Lake City, then flying Salt Lake City to Dallas-Fort Worth, and now they were flying the third and final leg of their journey for the day from Dallas-Fort Worth to Little Rock. Due to several small delays throughout their day, flight 1420 to Little Rock was delayed from an 8.28 p.m. departure to a 9 p.m. departure on the schedule. And the flight crew were made aware of this via an aircraft communication addressing and reporting system message or ACARS message while on the previous flight. So we've talked a little bit about ACARS in the past, but it is the messaging system from cockpit to ground basically to company or to ops, any of that. ACARS is... A very useful way of communicating without actually having to use radio communications. Text messaging. Yep, it's text messaging in its simplest form. Yes. It's also very expensive. <laughs> Which text astounds messaging. me. Yes. <laughs> Don't you pay, like, per character? Uh-huh. What? Uh-huh. It's like 10 cents a character. Well, and they use they still use VHF. Yeah, for that. they still use VHF, yeah. Wow. I think it's the, it's a private company that manages and they... Yeah, they charge like crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's like 10 cents a character. So the airlines, they've learned how to abbreviate every word. <laughs> <laughs> Three-letter words or two-letter words, one-letter words or no-letter words. <laughs> so you're the mechanic on the ground and you have an airplane in flight that sends an ACARS message for a uh, fault. Uh-huh. And you're trying to interpret that. Yep. <laughs> you couldn't possibly be talking from experience. <laughs> so then, then you scratch your head and uh, you look at your co- co-workers and we all shrug our, our shoulders and go, I don't know. You don't know. Yep. And then you decide to meet the captain at the door of the airplane. Yep. So sometimes it's great because they're like, yeah, all it is is this or that. And other times, you're open up a can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. ACARS is good. ACARS is still very useful. Once at Dallas-Fort Worth, the flight crew were to switch aircraft, so they left the plane that they had taken from Salt Lake City and proceeded to another gate for Flight 1420. 
The flight crew received the paperwork for the flight to Little Rock, which showed there was a potential for thunderstorms along their route. Ooh. Yeah, that, that sound you just made? Yeah. Entire episode. Ooh. <clears throat> yeah, ooh. <laughs> Once at the gate for flight 1420, the flight crew noted that the aircraft had yet to arrive. Hmm. The airplane was delayed arriving due to weather in the area. 9 p.m. came and went, but the plane had not. The flight crew notified the gate agents that they would have to depart by 11.16 p.m. in order to stay within crew duty time, per the company's requirements. Yeah. The first officer then called their dispatch to discuss finding another airplane or canceling the flight. At that time, another aircraft, the accident aircraft, was substituted. Hmm. The flight crew boarded the aircraft along with four cabin crew and 139 passengers. The flight finally departed at 10.40 p.m. local time, so they were... Pushing a little close, yeah. they had about another 35 minutes to go. <laughs> the captain was to be the pilot flying for this leg, while the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring. At 10.54 p.m., the dispatcher sent an ACARS message to notify the flight crew that they may have weather at Little Rock upon arrival, and they were asked to expedite their arrival and approach into Little Rock. Now, those are two very different things. We don't really talk about this very often, but an arrival and approach are two very different charted things for an airport. An arrival is how you get into the area... You get to the airport, yeah. you know, entering the airspace, and then an approach is how you actually approach get, the runway. Yeah. Get how you get the to the runway. ground. Yeah. Two Landing. very different things. Yeah. So the dispatcher was They're pushing like, them uh, to... Yeah, speed up. Pushing them to faster. expedite through as much as possible and probably skip some some of the approach. Because usually approaches require a couple of turns along the way and oh, yeah. arrivals and... Oh. And get vectored in. Yeah. Faster. Yep. Little Rock is not... A super busy airport anyways, so it's usually pretty easy to kind of go direct. Skip some steps. <laughs> As we would say. Move things along. Yep, move things along. The flight crew acknowledged this message. They had two alternate airports for their flight plan, Nashville and back to Dallas. Ah. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, yeah, the flight to Little Rock is only scheduled for just over an hour, but I think their flight time wasn't even an hour scheduled from ground to so ground. So it would be like if we had to fly to Salt Lake City. Yep. And we had to divert back to denver and that's actually a pretty common occurrence that's when, sad. when weather's affecting one city i mean my airline <laughs> about a month ago we had weather here in denver and they actually sent one of my airplanes to salt lake city and about a third of the passengers on board that was their final destination oh but we legally couldn't let them off come on they had to come all the way back here they ended Stop. up having to stay the night because they missed the last flight to Salt Lake City. How terrible is that? I would be so pissed. <laughs> Wait, did they get on the ground in Salt they Lake? They were on the ground in Salt Lake for an hour. Stop. No. But legally, we cannot let them off. There's all sorts of legalities behind letting people off in a city that's Because it's international. Yes, exactly. There was a lot of security things that came into play just to even allow that airplane to get fueled. Oh. But we couldn't even let anybody step off that airplane. Dang. Yep. Disaster. They had to come all the way back to Denver. Of course, one third of those passengers were very mad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, this is a disaster. <laughs> That's just sad. That's just sad. What we're talking about is a disaster. Okay, continue. Continuing. The flight contacted Fort Worth Air Route Traffic Control Center at 10.58 p.m. At 11.25 p.m. and 47 seconds, the captain noted that they needed to make it to Little Rock quick, and the first officer agreed as they were watching lightning out of the window uh -oh. over the city of Little Rock. Ooh. A minute later, the flight crew had the city and the airport area in sight. 11.27 p.m., Fort Worth Center cleared the flight to descend to 10,000 feet, and the crew acknowledged. A minute later, they were transferred to Memphis Air Route Traffic Control Center. And then at 11.34 p.m. in five seconds, the flight crew contacted the Little Rock Control Tower. So they weren't with Memphis for very long. This is pretty normal. 
The tower controller advised the flight crew that a thunderstorm was located to the northwest of the airfield and was tracking toward the airport, and current winds at the airport were 280 degrees at 28 knots, costing 44. Holy moly. (laughs) Come on. Not small. Woo. Yep. So wait, 280... 280-28 gusting. What was 44. the runway there? Do you know him? So, yes, we'll get there. Okay. Um, the first officer told the air traffic controller that they could see the lightning from the storm. The air traffic controller then told the crew to expect an ILS approach to runway 22 left. Okay. So, 22, okay. They're well, going to have a little bit of a crosswind. 60 degrees. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot. Right. We'll get there. Some things change. 11.36 p.m., the flight crew discussed the crosswind limitations per the company, which were 30 knots for dry runway and 25 knots for wet runway, which actually they couldn't agree on. Hmm. 11.39 p.m., the air traffic controller cleared the flight to descend to 3,000 feet. The flight began the 2-2 left approach. A short time later, the air traffic controller asked about the weather along the approach, and the first officer responded, quote, Okay, we can see the airport from here. We can barely make it out, but we should be able to make 2-2. That storm is moving this way like your radar says it is, but a little bit further off than you thought, end quote. The air traffic controller then offered the visual approach, but the flight crew denied this, wishing to stay on the ILS as long as possible due to the closing clouds and limited visibility. Yeah, probably a good idea. Yep. Yep. 11.39 p.m. and 45 seconds, the air traffic controller informed the flight crew of a wind shear alert Uh due to a significant wind speed difference from the center of the field to the north boundary and the northwest boundary. So they had three points on the airfield with sensors, which we have talked about. Go listen to our microburst series. Yes, our weather which, series. Which was episodes 38 through 41. Yes. Oh, These yeah, will come back yeah. up later. Yes. That is called foreshadowing. <laughs> foreshadowing. So they had a wind shear alert because there was a significant difference between the three. I think one of them was at 35 knots at like 310 degrees, one was at 330 degrees at 25 knots, and then one was at 10 knots at 330 degrees. So the difference in angle wasn't very much, but the speeds were significant. The flight crew then requested changing to runway 4 right to have a headwind since the wind direction had shifted significantly, because now it's all the way over at 330 degrees primarily. It's 4... Yeah, you're still talking... It's still a lot. 90 degrees on... Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, we're approaching the 90 degrees. Yeah, it's like 70. Yeah. 11.40 p.m. in 20 seconds, the air traffic controller acknowledged and began giving vectors to the flight to change to the runway 4 right ILS approach, instructing them to turn to 250 degrees. After completing the turn, the flight was now well clear of the storm that was approaching the area, but also pointed away from the airport. The flight crew then briefed for the 4 right ILS approach. They briefed briefly. Yes. 11.42 p.m., the flight crew discussed visuals of the airport. The captain asked, quote, Do you have the airport? Is that it right there? I don't see a runway, end quote. The air traffic controller then informed the flight crew that another part of the thunderstorm was moving through the area with winds at 340 degrees at 16 knots, gusting 3-4, so 34 knots. A hair better than the head before. Yes, and it's a little closer to down the runway on runway 4. Not great. A hair better. Yeah, a hair better, but not amazing. The first officer then asked the captain if they should attempt a short approach by turning in early. They were trying to get it in before the storm, mm-hmm. basically. The captain agreed to this, but only if the first officer could see the runway, which he stated he could. They began slowing the aircraft at that time to set up for the short approach. A moment later, the first officer stated that the storm appeared to be moving over the airport. The first officer then told the air traffic controller, quote, Well, we got the airport. We're going between the clouds. I think it's right off my uh, 3 o'clock low, about 4 miles. 
The air traffic controller then offered the visual approach to runway four right, and the first officer accepted, which would allow the flight crew to make an approach as short as they wanted, basically, because then they're allowed to just go in for the visual approach rather than having to go through the whole rigmarole of doing the ILS. However, at 11.43 p.m. and 11 seconds, the air traffic controller cleared the flight for the... So he cleared the flight for the visual approach to four right, also stating, if you lose it, need some help, let me know, please. And then at 11.43 p.m. and 35 seconds, an exchange began between the first officer and the captain about the visual contact with the airport again. The first officer stated that he had the airport in sight, but the captain could not see it. He asked the first officer for vectors, since he could see it. But then air traffic control chimed in, clearing the flight to land and providing new wind info of 330 degrees at 21 knots. The captain then stated again that it appeared that they were losing visual contact with the airport pretty quickly, and as well as the runway, and they would not be able to continue a visual approach. The first officer pretty much agreed. Hey, you know that visual approach we accepted? Yeah. Yeah, just kidding. We can't actually see the airport anymore. He contacted the air traffic controller, informing them that they had lost visual contact with the airport due to clouds between their position and the airport. The air traffic controller acknowledged this and instructed the flight to fly to 220 degrees for vectors to set up for the ILS approach. The air traffic controller then instructed the flight to descend to 2,300 feet. Seems like an oddly specific altitude, but actually this is probably per the ILS chart. Mm -hmm. It was probably leading them toward a waypoint to set up for the ILS. And at that waypoint on the chart, it gives you the altitudes along the way. So probably setting them up for the altitude for the point. 11.45 p.m. and 47 seconds, the first officer informed the air traffic controller, quote, we're getting pretty close to this storm. We'll keep it tight if we have to, end quote, saying... Get us in as quick as we can. (laughs) The air traffic controller stated to the flight, quote, when you join the final, you're going to be right at just a little bit outside the marker if that's going to be okay for you, end quote. Which she's talking about the outside marker. So the furthest marker from the runway, but it's still still pretty close. Uh The captain and the first officer agreed, and the first officer responded, that's great with us, quote unquote. So they basically agreed to go to the markers. Are you looking at the, the chart? I'm going to try to pull it up. Arkansas. Arkansas. I think the runway's changed a little bit. Yeah, we'll see, we'll see if we'll I can see. find it. It's only been a few years since then. <laughs> only a few. Only a few. Like 20-ish. 23. Plus. So what is it? <laughs> ILS, four left? Four right. Four right. Here it is. Let's pull it up. There it is. I got it. 2300 initial fix for the, uh, what are we talking about here? Which punt is that one? Yeah, it's 2300 for the initial, for the ILS. So the entrance to the ILS is at 2300 Yeah, and it's at about six miles. There you go. Yeah, that makes sense. Still is. What do you know? 11.46 p.m. and 39 seconds, the air traffic controller informed the flight that they were now three miles from the outer marker. 11.46 p.m. and 52 seconds, so only a handful of seconds later, the captain noted that they were flying directly toward the storm. Simultaneously, the air traffic controller informed them that the airport was now experiencing heavy rain and the current ATIS information, or automated terminal information system, in effect, was no longer valid. So basically the one that they had recorded for the hour didn't matter anymore because the weather had changed so much in just a few minutes. Which was Romeo, in case you care. Visibility at the airport was less than one mile at the time, with runway visual range, or RVR, for four right at 3,000 feet. So that is their Not much. visual distance. The first officer acknowledged this information. 
11.47 p.m. in eight seconds, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to land again, this time on runway four right, at which time they were informed that the winds were now at 350 degrees at 30 knots, gusting to 45. Yep. That is some sustained winds. That's some wind. So w- with all this, you know, I, I'm putting myself in the place of, of the pilots, and I'm thinking, gosh, with all these changes, all these difficulties, changes in winds... I, you know, at which point would you say, okay, we got to call it Let's yeah. go somewhere else? Right. Yeah. That is a very good question. Oh, <laughs> that means that comes you know, up later. That is a great it's, question. And, and and we work, I work with other pilots and we have the three strikes and now, you know, they've had more than three strikes of changes, things that don't go right, they, they go their way. You do three strikes and you call it, man. Yeah. Yeah. Go to your alternate, go back to Dallas. Yep. Those are your options. Sorry, I'm probably anticipating, but I, I wasn't in the cockpit. I can't. Do you know how many times Miranda has sat here and guessed the entire sequence of events <laughs> and we've had to cut it? Because I'm like, what am I supposed to? I don't, that's the episode. That's it. That's done. <laughs> Sorry. Don't, don't feel bad. It's, nope. it's a common occurrence. So we are gusting. So it was 330 gusting 44. 350. 350. So At 30 50, knots gusting 45. So. so we have 50 degrees with, what did you say, 30 gusting 45? Mm-hmm. So you already have a wind shear of 15 with 50 degrees to your left. Yep. Wait, 50 degrees? I thought it was... It's three... Oh, no. Sorry. Four right, so... To three, four. five, zero. Three, three five, five, zero. So it's not terribly It's 50 far. degrees. Because for runway four? Yeah. Yeah, which would be 40 degrees. Oh, just kidding. It's 50 degrees yeah. to your left. It's 50 degrees to the left. We're good. No. I can't know. Sorry, I... Yeah. 40, so it's 50 degrees to your left. So you're past the 45 degrees, you know, 50 degrees to your left, and you have 30 gusting 45. So you have wind shear, you know, it's 15. Yep. And then you have a gusting of 45, which probably exceeded their, their maximum, or at least it's oh, yeah. close. Plus the heavy rain. Yep. Wow. I'm, I would, that's check. I'm, <laughs> I'm out of here. I'm bye. <laughs> you know what? Not, what, uh, you know what? Not Never a good mind. Looking, We're just gonna go somewhere. Else. Not a good looking situation. Yeah, well, they did. I have a feeling they, they got a little bit waited? of get their itis. Can you That's stop predicting the entire episode? <laughs> There's still things we haven't gotten to, though. Ah, what do you want me to do? Stop being good at your job. I don't know. <laughs> She's too good at this now. She knows too much about <laughs> aviation. These two know more about aviation than a lot of people I know in aviation. It's <laughs> what happens when you've had a podcast for three years. It's true. The captain noted that the RVR was too low for them at 3,000 feet, but the first officer disagreed, stating that the RVR, the runway visual range... I know what RVR is, yes, thank you. But yes, thank you for reminding. Yes. ...was valid to 2,400 feet for runway 4 right, to which the captain said, okay, fine, quote-unquote. <laughs> quote-unquote. That is what he said. 2,500. 2,400. 2,400. Mm-hmm. 11.47 p.m. in 44 seconds, the captain called for gear down, and the first officer did so. Five seconds later, the captain called for lights to be turned on. Not exactly sure what lights. They didn't specify. They just said lights. Oh, oh well. Landing lights? I would assume lights? so, yeah. but they're already down pretty low, so I would think. But 11.47 p.m. and 53 seconds, the air traffic controller issued a second wind shear alert due to differing winds at all three reporting points again. I think the max difference being, again, about 15 knots, somewhere between 15 and 20 knots. I'm not exactly sure. The crew did not acknowledge... The wind shear report. The flight crew did discuss, and the captain asked about 20 knots be added to the final approach speed, which the first officer agreed to. Wise. Wise thing to do when you're encountering that much wind. Hey, let's find out how long that runway is. You didn't talk about that, did you? 
No, but I know that that has changed. Oh. oh. So we're not going to talk about that right now. No. I know that that has changed, and there's this flight might be part of the reason why. <laughs> that is very blatant, explicit foreshadowing. Yes. <laughs> 11.48 p.m. in 12 seconds, the air traffic controller reported that runway 4 right RVR was now at 1,600 feet. I would call that strike 10. Yeah. I don't know. 15. <laughs> just, just go to a different airport. The captain then indicated that they were established on the final approach, which the first officer then repeated to the air traffic controller. The air traffic controller then repeated the landing clearance and gave them a wind update of 340 degrees at 31 knots as well as the winds for all of the wind shear reporting locations and the same RVR of 1,600 feet. So basically, the air traffic controller had been trying to tell him, guys, this is not, not looking good. good. <laughs> no. But he this doesn't have the authority to tell him not to land. Exactly. The first officer acknowledged this information from the air traffic controller. The air traffic controller would not receive any further communications from the flight after this point. The first officer then asked the captain if he wanted flaps 40, or landing flaps, so basically flaps full for their approach. Mm -hmm. And he agreed, thinking that they had already called for it, actually. In the Mayday episode, I think they depicted him saying, I thought I already called for that. I don't right. know if that's like a, a that verbatim. Was, I think that was in the report. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes they take artistic liberties. So. Yes. Yes. As much is true. Yeah. 11.49 p.m. in 10 seconds, the air traffic controller informed the flight that the winds were now at 330 at 28 knots. So a little worse. The captain stated... This is a can of worms, quote-unquote, <laughs> oh. to the first officer two seconds later. First officer then noted that the runway was off to their right and asked the captain if he had it in sight, which he replied that he did not. Uh-oh. The first officer then told the captain that he had the runway in sight. They were on course and to just stay on course as they are. So just keep flying as you are. He can see the runway. Captain couldn't, but... The captain then stated, quote, I got it, I got it. 11.49 p.m. and 32 seconds, the air traffic controller reported winds at 330 at 25 knots, so a little less wind, but he's constantly giving them wind updates. 11.49 p.m. and 37 seconds, so just five seconds later, the windshield wipers were turned on in the cockpit. And another about 15 seconds later, the air traffic controller reported winds at 320 at 23 knots. So it's shifting even further. That crosswind component. Not good. Well, right now, you're looking not very good. Nope. Well, But the wind is a little calmer. But Yes. 11.49 p.m. and 57 seconds, the flight crew noted that they were a little off course. They were now 400 feet above ground level, and it had appeared that the airplane had drifted to the right of the final approach path a bit. Uh-oh. 11.50 p.m., the first officer noted, we're way off, quote-unquote. One second later, the captain stated, I can't see it. He couldn't see the runway. Okay, do a go-around and go to your alternate airport then. Like, clearly at this point, landing is not a good idea. You have plenty of altitude. Do a go-around, go to another airport. Well, three seconds later, the first officer asked the captain, got it? To which the captain replied, yeah, I got it. Found the runway. I thought you just said have it. Now he does. 11.50 p.m. in 13 seconds, the ground proximity warning system radio altitude called out, sink rate, sink rate, as the airplane was now at 70 feet above ground Ooh. and about over the threshold. The airplane touched down on the runway at 11.50 p.m. in 20 seconds, so just seven seconds after that sink rate warning. Two seconds later, the first officer stated, we're down. And two seconds after that, he stated, we're sliding. <laughs> well. So they actually did find the runway? They found the runway. They were on it. 
The thrust reversers and spoilers had activated this time, though unevenly and seemingly I'm not sorry, correct. can you say that again? I know. Okay. I said what I said, and I meant what I said. Okay. Because it's what they said in the report, and there is a reason why. I don't know if you read why. I didn't, but keep I'll going. explain when you get to it. Okay. Both flight crew began using their wheel brakes. The thrust reversers then stopped momentarily before deploying hard again. 11.50 p.m. and 31 seconds, both sets of wheel brake pedals were at full pressure. So the left Ooh, and the right, both the captain yep. and the first officer. The captain's brake pedals were then released for two seconds before returning to full pressure. The thrust reversers were then deactivated again. And at 11.50 p.m. and 48 seconds, the left thrust reverser was moved back to full reverse thrust. The right one was briefly deployed, but then stowed again. One second later, someone on the flight deck swore. Yeah. This was immediately followed by the airplane leaving the end of the runway and striking some permanent fixtures past its end at 11.50 p.m. and 44 seconds. The airplane struck some tubes that extended from the end of the runway before going through a chain-link fence over a rock embankment into a floodplain where it collided with the structure for the runway 2-2 left approach lighting before coming to rest 15 feet below the runway level in the floodplain. A post-crash fire ensued while the rain fell in the darkness of night. The cockpit area suffered severe damage in the forward area of the airplane immediately upon the accident, which severely injured the first officer, but the captain did not survive. Ooh. Ten passengers also perished in the accident, but all other passengers and crew managed to escape the burning and destroyed airplane. In all, four crew and 41 passengers were seriously injured, which was all of the remaining crew. One crew and 64 passengers were minorly injured, so one of the cabin crew was minorly injured. And 24 passengers were not injured at all. But the airplane was completely destroyed after the fire. I mean, oh, it yeah. burned the whole thing. There was not much left. And that's pretty much it. Wow. A lot happened very quickly. Yeah. And what you don't really realize is just how quickly all of this actually happened from the time that they set up for their initial approach to runway 22 left. Let's see here. Began their approach just... 21 minutes before the accident. They decided to change just a few minutes after that, and then they set up for the four-right approach about five minutes before the accident. So a lot of things happened yeah. in a very short amount of time that yeah. they stated there. Most of those things were within just a few minutes. Yeah. Whew. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. That cockpit's destroyed. Yep. All right. This investigation was performed by the... NTSB! Yep. Good job. So proud. Who's that again? <laughs> <laughs> National Transportation Safety Board. Thank you. You're welcome. Both black boxes were recovered, and despite a little uh, char on the outside, both were readable when they were sent to the NTSB headquarters in D.C. Those will be sporadically throughout my analysis. Okay. The first thing that investigators looked at, they had to do... Pretty quickly, so as to get the runway back up and running for airport operations, was the runway itself. Yes. Especially in a runway overrun, investigators look at the runway for clues, such as touchdown point, tire marks, tire path, etc. Investigators found pretty early on that for quite a bit of the landing, the crew was flying a little bit sideways, not entirely straight, much like myself. One might say... Sort of sliding down that runway yeah, sideways. One... Couldn't possibly be because of the wind. Can you shut up? I'm sorry, continue. One might say it was crabbing. What might have caused that? <laughs> Nick already gave it up. <laughs> <laughs> we already knew. <laughs> An immediate suspicion was the weather. If you're ever bored, much like we are, go check out crosswind landings on YouTube. 
Some of them are absolutely insane because they have to fly slightly or more than slightly sideways to counter the wind. If you aren't the one anticipating the wind, the wind will blow you sideways the other way. And investigators thought that might have been the case given the uh, storm. The winds reported on on final were from 350 at 30 knots gusting 45 knots resulting in a 23 knot crosswind. Yep. That's not comfortable. No. Within their limits, though, because he said 25 on a wet. Well, they couldn't agree on that. Investigators found that this exceeded the airline operational limit of a 10-knot crosswind with an RVR of 1,800 feet or below. There you go. Right. And they couldn't agree on it because one of them thought it was 20 and one of them thought it was 25, but it turns out it was way lower than both. Once they got the RVR to be 1,600, that's when the crosswind, the allowable crosswind was 10 knots. Right. And they far exceeded that. Yeah. But could the crew have known the weather conditions? American Airlines tried to argue that the crew was not given enough information to make a sound decision of whether (laughs) or not to land. How many times did the aircraft controller give them? Yeah, that's BS. (laughs) The weather? I'm sorry. I mean, they were given the weather multiple times. They decided to land on their own volition. A lot of my notes were just going through everything that Nick just said, so I'm going to skip a lot of my notes. I warned you I did not leave much out. At 11.39, the first officer told the controller, quote, The storm is moving this way like your radar says it is, but a little farther off than you thought, end quote. And the air traffic controller reported winds from 340 at 10 knots. American Airlines did not prohibit pilots from continuing an approach with thunderstorms so long as their intended route was clear. And theirs was. They could see the airport. Up to that point. Okay. So they were correct at first, thinking that they could make it at this stage. They requested a runway change, blah, blah, blah. Their abbreviated briefing for the new runway did include a missed approach procedure. So they knew what to do. Should they go around? Okay. And at this point, they were still receiving wind reports from the controller, and their radar had gone from blue to green. So things are getting a little... Not bad. But not great. Okay. Getting worse. The controller offered the visual approach, which was accepted, but at 11.44, the captain said, we're losing it. I don't think we can maintain a visual, so they went ILS. The crew flew back to blue on the radar, but the weather radar simulation showed that the runway was under orange at that point. At 11.46, the controller advised the crew of heavy rain at the airport with visibility of less than a mile in that Adis Romeo was no longer current. The captain said, oh, we're we're going right into this, as they flew into yellow. Less than a minute later, the controller cleared them to land with winds from 350 at 30 knots, gusting to 45. The CVR did not record any discussion of wind, rain, or the weather radar, but they had a visual with the runway, so they thought they could make it. At 11.47, they turned final with that lovely 23-knot crosswind. The controller reported winds once again and a wind shear alert. The captain added 20 knots to the approach speed to compensate. My point with all this is the controller gave them ample information. To make the correct decision. Yep. Plus, the crew also had weather radar on board and wind shear detection on board. The real nails in the coffin that determined that the crew definitely knew they should have gone around was the captain saying on the CBR, I hate droning around at night when I don't know where I am, as well as the first officer saying when interviewed that he told the captain to go around. That was never actually heard on the CBR, but he stands by the fact that he said it. There's a point that they put in the story, in the history of flight in the report, where... It says that there was an unintelligible voice from they couldn't figure out who, and they weren't sure what he was saying, and they put the note in there that the first officer in post-accident interviews 
claims to have said to go around, but that he didn't say so loud. With like he didn't fiction. say so right. I can read actually what it says. And he also didn't do it himself. Yeah, I mean, if you want to go around, do it. At this point which, in history, you're allowed to say my airplane we're going around. Like, right. Which tells me that he wasn't entirely sure if that was the right thing to do either. Yeah. In his own mind. The first officer also stated that he said go around about that time, but not in a very strong voice. The first officer indicates that he had looked at the captain to see if he had heard him, but that the captain was intent on flying and was doing a quote-unquote good job. Okay. So the first officer claims to have said go around, but not very loudly. He looked at the captain to see if he heard him, when the captain seemed to just be focused on flying and didn't appear to have heard him, he decided not to continue with his go-around. Yeah. Supposedly. There's no proof of that, though. So, we know going into this, they didn't make very good decisions. But all of this still doesn't answer the question as to why the plane overran the runway. Right. They touched down pretty soon. They were 70 feet when they crossed the threshold. They used the ILS, so they actually touched down about when they were supposed to. Investigators calculated the braking coefficient to be at least 0.23, which is greater than hydroplaning. So they didn't do that, and braking worked, especially when they inspected the brake system and found it capable of functioning. They also found that the anti-skid system was working perfectly, as indicated by a lack of flat spots or reverted rubber on the tires. The runway itself was sufficiently grooved per NASA Mm -hmm. when interviewed, finding that the runway's ability to prevent hydroplaning and other braking problems was excellent. Investigators interviewed the passengers to see if they saw anything out of the ordinary. They particularly interviewed the passengers sitting next to or behind the wings as they could see the wing configuration. Right. It's a little hard on an MD-82 because the wings are so far rear. (laughs) But there were passengers that could see this. And they found that flaps were configured correctly, flight spoilers went up as planned, all of that was great. Until they learned that none of the passengers saw the spoilers go up on touchdown. The ground spoilers did not deploy. They were not armed. That would explain it, but it was confirmed by the FDR that the spoilers did not deploy. But why not? Was there a mechanical fault, or was it more pilot error? But the Darman. I I would bet my money it it's is on pilot error. That's my next sentence. <laughs> they were pretty busy coming in to land. Having mm-hmm. investigated numerous disasters before, the NTSB went back and listened to the CVR, listening for a click, indicating that the spoilers were armed. And the click was never heard. They were never armed. Never armed. Never armed. They never talked about it either. Well, that doesn't mean they weren't armed. Surely you can't hear everything that the crew does on the control panel. But this is a pretty loud click, actually, apparently. Investigators actually did two flight tests in similar aircraft with similar CVRs and challenged the crews on each to be as quiet in arming the spoilers as possible. And you still heard it. They even went super slow to... Nope, you still heard a very audible click. So, safe to say, spoilers were not armed. Overwhelmed by the storm, the crew forgot to arm the spoilers while landing on a wet runway. Do you talk at all about why some people actually did think the spoilers went up? I do not. So, it actually came up in the history of flight that upon landing, the right side appeared to have gone up, but the left side didn't. And that's actually because they put in full aileron input to the left. Oh, which brought the right side up. And so it's part of actually they would do that in flight, but it doesn't bring them right. all the way up. It only brings them up a small amount per flight. If you go left, it's a left spoiler. 
Would it be the left spoilers that go up? Yeah. Well, they said okay. that they said that one side okay, went up and not the control. other. Okay, whatever it is, yeah. Right. So because they were trying to point the airplane into the wind, and the correct thing is actually to turn the aileron all the way to the pointed end of the wind. Spoilers do come up. On the, right. right, and the spoilers would come up on one side of the airplane. The first officer said he did not arm the spoilers because he thought the captain had, which brings up a really interesting point. CRM. American Airlines checklist. Yeah. CRM. Did not require a dual confirmation of challenge and response for arming of spoilers. Right. So they didn't design it with proper CRM for that to be done. Well, if you think about it, it should have been the first officer, right? Because the captain was flying the airplane. Hmm? Although yeah. the captain should ask for it. And it's yes. Right. It, should be, it should be a challenge response. Both right. crew members yes. participate in some way, shape, or form. But in, I mean, talking about like roles, it would have yeah. been the first officer that the, actually armed them. The spoiler lever is on the captain's side, so I can kind of understand why it might be better for the captain to do it. And actually, they have a picture of what it looks like armed and unarmed. There's a big giant red armed when it's armed. Yeah. On the side of the stick. It's definitely more more prevalent than some other airplanes. Yeah. This one you actually have to squeeze, lift, and put into place. Yeah, Which is why it's really hard to do that quietly. Right. 3-7 in Airbus, it's not very visible. No, it's just another... <clears> but you do get a, a visual indication in your instrument panel. Yeah. Right. And now for your regularly scheduled things Mayday didn't address properly. <laughs> This part, they actually didn't talk about at all, despite it being directly addressed as part of the probable cause. According to American Airlines' DC-9 operating manual, as well as Boeing's MD-80 manual, pilots were not to exceed 1.3 engine pressure ratio or EPR on a slippery, wet, or contaminated runway. And yet this happened several times during landing, even going so far as 1.6 EPR. Ooh. In fact... At one point, one of them got to 1.94. Yeah. Wow. The thrust reversers were deployed, stowed, and deployed again, repetitively, leaning more towards deployed as they neared the end of the runway. This is problematic because excessive reverse thrust actually reduces or eliminates the effectiveness of the rudder and vertical stabilizer, which was reflected in the flight data recorder when the nose was moving left while the rudder was trying to aim it to the right. And that is because this has bucket type. Oh, mm-hmm. so I was like, why are they doing the, that? The engines okay. are mounted on the rear of the aircraft, and it has bucket types. So okay. the, it actually is pushing airflow against the elevator and the rudder, something that doesn't happen on most aircraft, actually. So by using excessive reverse mm-hmm. thrust, they're losing control, steering control. Yep. Is there a reason they decided to just, they deployed them, then undeployed them, then deployed them, then My them? My theory, because they didn't confirm this, unless you have something, my theory is that they were trying to feather it for control. Oh. They were trying to feather sense. where the reverse thrust was, because they started switching which one was reversing, too, left and right. And they seem to be pulling them in and out to try to slow the airplane down a little Kinda bit Kind of like time. if you're on ice in a car that doesn't have ABS. You're right. Pumping. You're pumping your you're brakes pumping your and brakes. you're steering yeah. hard. And, yeah. Wow. I imagine that's basically what they were doing. Per operating manual, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say anything. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> now to a little phenomenon that Miranda alluded to earlier. All of this was exacerbated by a little phenomenon we've discussed before called continuation bias, more colloquially known as... Get their-itis. Yep. Yep. This is where you feel rushed to get to the airport and land no matter what, despite your better instincts. And the crew definitely had this working against them in spades. Mm. One, they were coming up on their duty time of 14 hours. 
I'll revisit this in a little bit. Yeah. Two, they were pressured earlier to beat the storm. And when that didn't work, three, they were pressured to land just to get out of the storm. Yep. I'm sure they wanted to be yeah. on the ground. Yeah. I'm yep. sure too. they just wanted to not be in the airplane. Well, and then knowing that your diversion point is your origination airport yeah. sucks. Yes. They were heard on the CVR saying the following. We got to get over there quick. I don't like that. That's lightning. We got to get there quick. I say we get down as soon as we can. All of these things yep. are symptomatic of get itis This whole situation reminded me and investigators of some of our earlier episodes where we covered microbursts, specifically U.S. Air Flight 1016 and Delta Flight 191, which I believe are episodes 41 and 40, respectively. In that report specifically, the Delta Flight 191, the NTSB addressed that, quote, there is an apparent lack of appreciation on the part of some and perhaps many flight crews of the need to avoid thunderstorms and to appraise the position and severity of the storms pessimistically and cautiously, end quote. So in June of 1999, the month of this accident, NASA and MIT conducted a study of weather radar and ATC radar data to document flight crew behavior at Dallas-Fort Worth for 60 hours during convective activity or storms. Of the 1,952 encounters with storm cells, pilots penetrated the thunderstorms 1,310 times. That is 67% of the time. The study concluded that pilots were more likely to do so if it was dark, if they were within 10 to 16 miles of the airport, if they were following another aircraft, or if they were behind schedule by more than 15 minutes. All but one of these were factors applicable to American Airlines Flight 1420. They were not following another airplane. No. The last bit I have is rather ironic as I write this, as I myself am quite fatigued writing this after a full workday and not a full night of sleep. Investigators looked into the effect of fatigue on the crew. Although neither of them explicitly said they were tired, yawns were recorded on the CBR, and the first officer even said he was tired when he was interviewed later. But he wasn't concerned about the captain being fatigued, and they noted this because it's easier to recognize fatigue in yourself than it is in someone else. Yeah. There were a lot of signs, though, from the things the captain was saying that he was probably very fatigued. He couldn't see the runway when the first officer could, and he couldn't see it most of the time, and he was the pilot flying. So and you, he was the one with his eyes locked out the window. And you get bleary-eyed and tired. Mm-hmm. Both pilots had had a full night of sleep, but both had been continuously awake for at least 16 hours. Yeah, I was going to say, it's getting pretty late, right? And we're talking about, we're close to, like, the circadian low, right? Yep. Like, yep. They're probably just like, okay, I'm tired. I want to get on the ground so I can go to bed. Right. And research shows that between 14 and 16 hours is when you begin to experience lapses in vigilance. The NTSB found in a 1994 study that errors significantly increased after 13 hours of being awake. The accident also occurred two hours past the captain's routine bedtime, which exacerbates the effects of fatigue. Yep. This whole thing took place in actually their native time zone, because they're from Chicago. They're Chicago-based. Mm. But they're, the captain's regularly, regularly scheduled, as if like actual adults have that, bedtime is 9.30 to 10 p.m. And now it's almost, almost midnight. midnight. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean. It's been a long time. They're tired. They've been up for a long time. I think they woke up at 7.30 that morning. Yeah. It's a long day. Yeah. I 100% think they were fatigued. Yep. And that's all I got. Great. All right. Take a short break break. We'll come back with all the normal stuff. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're back. Welcome. Okay. Findings? Yep, we're going to do the regular stuff. Findings, cause, and recommendations. This is the first one we've actually had in a while that has all three. Yep. (laughs) So, good on us. There were a lot of findings. I am not doing all of them. I am. Uh, I'm seeing more than 36. Yeah, but that's still a lot. Maybe. 36. Six findings. Yeah. One of the reports we had recently had 65. So this is this is technically <laughs> somewhere. seems like doable. This seems somewhere. 65. Right. This one was a 65. Uh, I, don't I don't even know if it's one of the ones that's out yet. I think it's one of the last two that we did. Oh. Okay. That aren't out yet. I have no idea. Don't ask me. But this one has 36 and I'm probably doing about 20 of them. So they found that during the descent into the terminal area, the flight crew members could have reasonably believed that they could reach the airport before the thunderstorm. They had plenty of reason to believe they could make it. They were not wrong in entering the area. No. And when they set up for the original approach at 2-2 left, the storm wasn't really over the airport at all. Actually, they had plenty of visual at the airport. It wasn't much of a concern. They really knew that they could make that approach, except that the winds were so far off for their approach, that it really was outside of the limitations of the aircraft. They found that because the first officer was able to maintain visual contact with the runway as the airplane was vectored for the final approach course, both flight crew members might still have believed that Flight 1420 could arrive at the airport before the thunderstorm. Because the first officer kept saying, I can see the runway, I can see the runway, I still have it in sight, I can see it, do you see it? I see it. They kept going. Yeah. Continuation bias. They found that when the second wind shear alert was received, the flight crew should have recognized that the approach to runway 4 right should not continue because the maximum crosswind component for conducting the landing had been exceeded. Far beyond. (laughs) They found that because the flight crew's failure to adequately prepare for the approach in the rapidly deteriorating weather conditions, the likelihood of safely completing the approach was decreasing, and the need to take a different course of action was progressively increasing. As a result, the flight crew should have abandoned the approach. They didn't even arm the spoilers. Mm-hmm. We found that the auto spoiler system operated properly and the spoilers did not automatically deploy because the spoiler handle was not armed by either pilot before landing. Oops. Yep. They found that the flight crew failed to verify that the spoilers had automatically deployed after landing and the captain failed to manually extend the spoilers when they did not deploy. It's kind of an important thing when you get to that point where they touch down in, in any cockpit these days, you would hear them say, spoilers deployed. You know, reversers, thrust reversers, normal, basically. They found that the lack of spoiler deployment led directly to the flight crew's problems in stopping the airplane within the remaining available runway length and maintaining directional control of the airplane on the runway. Spoilers exist for a reason. Yep. They found that the use of reverse thrust at levels greater than 1.3 engine pressure ratio significantly reduced the effectiveness of the airplane's rudder and vertical stabilizer and resulted in further directional control problems on the runway. They found that the maximum reverse thrust for the MD-80 landings on wet or slippery runways should be 1.3 engine pressure ratio, except when directional control can be sacrificed for a marginal increase in deceleration. Yeah, this that would, was not applicable here. This would not be the case in this well, instance. Not with that crosswind. No, gosh, no. They found that the automatic brake systems reduce pilot's workload during landings in wet, slippery, or high crosswind conditions. 
they bring that up because they didn't use the auto brakes. They didn't use the auto brake system. So they decided to manually use the brakes, which added to their workload. So they didn't pay attention to the spoilers. They weren't really paying attention to their reverse thrust. They weren't really just thinking about how to slow this airplane down Sounds properly. Like they didn't really plan the, the landing very well. Nope. They pretty much just planned to get to the ground, and then they didn't really have a plan from there. Well, and in theory, was the co-pilot allowed to be on the brake since the pilot flying was the pilot? I don't know. Yeah, that I don't know, but they they show that... Question. Right. They show that both sets of brakes were yep. pushed, so... So when the pilot released him to try to make an adjustment, obviously that didn't react like he, he right. was expecting either. Right. He found that the lack of spoiler deployment was the single most important factor in the flight crew's inability to stop the accident airplane within the available runway length. Spoilers are just did not they didn't have them, so they didn't get any slowing at all from the spoilers. Well, the spoilers also really allow you to to kill the lift, so right. it allows a bit more weight on the ground. The, the yeah, it gives you more friction. Right, more friction. Because yep. friction is the product of the normal force on the ground and the coefficient of friction. Right, when the airplane's so, still trying to lift. You don't have a lot of normal force working in your favor. Right. That is physics 100. <laughs> Downforce. We found that the flight crew members' performance during the accident flight was degraded as evidenced by their operational errors and impaired decision-making. Mm-hmm. We found that the flight crew members' focus on expediting the landing because of the impending weather contributed to their degraded performance. And they found that aircraft penetration of thunderstorms occurs industry-wide. They're saying more than... Obviously, just this instance. Yeah, that MIT NASA study proved it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. They found that the flight crew's degraded performance was consistent with known effects of fatigue. Seems pretty reasonable to me. Yep. They found that the local controller provided appropriate, pertinent, and timely weather information to the flight crew regarding the conditions on approach to and at the airport. He didn't really have any other airplanes to focus on at the Mm -hmm. time. So his primary focus really was this airplane, and he didn't think it was a good idea. It was pretty clear. Because he couldn't tell them no, because he doesn't have the right. Right. So what he did was continue to tell them over and over and over again what the winds were, what visibility was. Implicitly saying, guys, is a really bad idea. Pretty much. And pr- the only reason that he didn't have any other air traffic in the air is probably because all the rest went home. Or yep. were already there. Wow. They found that if near real-time color weather radar showing precipitation intensity were available, it would provide air traffic controllers with improved representation of weather conditions in their areas of responsibility. Which means that the crew actually had more weather radar data than the controller did. Which is part of why when they were approaching 2-2 left, the air traffic controller had actually asked the flight crew, hey, how are the conditions on your approach? Yeah. Because they had weather radar to see through it. So it's one of those things that has changed a little bit over the years. We have much better radar radar anyways. So, So, Al, I have a question for you. Yes. Do you also have to help maintain the weather radar on the aircraft? If need it be, yes. Mm-hmm. You do so much. <laughs> they do it all. You have to fix chairs, fix toilets, fix avionics. Good uh, God. Fix engine? Yeah, mostly toilets. Mostly toilets. <laughs> <laughs> I went to A&P school and I just fixed toilets. Yeah. <laughs> Chapter 38. <laughs> yeah. Are you serious? For those that know what chapter 38 means, it's chapter 38. <laughs> Guys, I'm working on a chapter 38 tonight. Okay, we'll see you later. <laughs> oh, good. They found that the current two-hour runway visual range archiving capability is inadequate to ensure the data can be preserved for future use. So by the time they got really? to investigating this, 
they couldn't prove what the RVR was at the time of the accident because they didn't have the data. They only had what was on the recording. So that's what they knew. And they knew it was too low. That was enough. But it would have been nice if they had actually had the data. They found that part of the delay in locating the Flight 1420 wreckage was preventable, and several minutes in the emergency response had, might have been saved if the aircraft rescue and firefighting units had proceeded directly to the departure end of the runway 4 right. So it actually took some time for the firefighters and the rescue crews to actually arrive at the wreckage because they didn't know where it was. They didn't immediately find it in the weather, <laughs> and they didn't just immediately go to the end of the runway either to find it, but that's where no it was. Clue, yeah. Yep. They found that... Aircraft rescue and firefighting units may not be staffed at a level that enables ARFF personnel upon arrival at an accident scene to conduct exterior firefighting activities, an interior fire suppression attack, and a rescue mission. So they weren't properly staffed, actually, to handle the accident that happened that day because they needed to do all of those things. That's quite a few, quite a few people, you know, especially yeah, it is. on a quiet airport. I imagine Little Rock is not a really big airport, so it's no. not a very, so it, it, you would have to have a lot of staff for right, especially in the middle of the night when there's not normal. <clears> so I can see the challenge of that one. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. We found that American Airlines has insufficient guidance to assist its pilots in performing a stabilized approach and recognizing when an approach has become unstabilized. So they didn't provide enough training to these pilots to understand when. Their approach is no longer stable. Yeah, because they probably would have gone to an alternative airport. Right. It wasn't, though, entirely that their approach was unstable, because there was a point where they drifted to the right, but that could be contributed to crosswinds, and that can happen at pretty much any time. But they actually landed on the runway, and the ILS did bring them pretty much straight in. So it's not to say that their approach was really necessarily unstable. I don't know, that whole sink rate thing? The sink rate, yes, but... They didn't have a lot of other indications to say that they were really unstable because the ILS brought them right to the runway. It was just that they didn't prepare for stopping once they were there. So yeah, that was really the big thing. And then, of course, decision-making on going into the really bad weather, that was a whole different thing. Still trying to picture being there and, and, and being in that cockpit and decision-making. Yeah. Is, I mean, I, obviously, I wasn't there. I can't right. judge, but... They found that effective FAA oversight of American Airlines MD-80 training and line operations has not occurred up to this point. So they didn't really have any oversight at all. And that's all of the findings that I'm going to read. The probable cause. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable causes of this accident were the flight crew's failure to discontinue the approach when severe thunderstorms and their associated hazards to flight operations had moved into the airport area, and the crew's failure to ensure that the spoilers were extended after touchdown. Contributing to the accident were the flight crew's, one, impaired performance resulting from fatigue and the situational stress associated with the intent to land under the circumstances, two, continuation of the approach to a landing when the company's maximum crosswind component was exceeded, and three, use of reverse thrust greater than 1.3 engine pressure ratio after landing. Hmm. Yep. Truly a lot to think of. And yeah. In, in our reality, uh, you know, fatigue was probably the, the major cause, I would say. Because it's, it's not like the huge. pilots yes. seemed like they weren't capable. I mean, yeah, the co-pilot wasn't really all that experienced, but he seemed right. to come across as fairly confident of what they were doing. Yep. But it, it, it seems like... They missed quite a few steps. Yeah, I think they really just were fatigued. Because, I mean, along the way, they really weren't... There was a lot of good CRM in reality yeah. and a lot of the things they did, but then there was the things they missed because they were Which fatigued. Which were huge. Again, it seemed like there was any conflict in the, in the cockpit. Nope. You know? 
Yep. Some differences in, in what they saw or opinion, but not not at all. And I, I, I suspect that if the first officer had said go around out loud. So with conviction. It, with conviction. It probably would have happened. It would have happened. Yeah, because I think the it's captain. Part of their CRM all, anyways. But. Perhaps the captain, if just hearing that, would have said, oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. Maybe he would have realized it was the right thing to do. But they had continuation bias. So they, and yeah. the first officer had kind of been pushing the captain the whole time of like, well, I see the runway. Why can't you see it? You know, so I don't know. It's one, it's, of, those it's one of those things that I, I almost take a perfect storm, like you're saying. Huh. Yep. Always is. Not punning, but I mean, yeah, obviously. But no, yeah, but yes. Okay, I made typical, a pun earlier and no one caught it, so. The typical, typical case where, boy, you know, one, one little link could have been just broken. Yep. So let's get into the recommendations here. They recommend to Part 121 and 135 operators of airplanes equipped with automatic spoiler systems require dual crew member confirmation before landing that the spoilers have been armed. Yes, please. And verify that these operators include this procedure in their flight manuals, checklists, and training programs. It's pretty simple. You add it into the before landing checklist, arm spoilers, checked. Done. Yeah, just truly a landing checklist part. Sounds like it wasn't there, was it? Or nope, it wasn't there. It's more a discretion of the pilot. Right. So they're saying, make it not one. <laughs> they recommend a Part 121 and 135 operators to require a call-out if the spoilers do not automatically or manually deploy during landing and a call-out when the spoilers have deployed and verify that these operators include these procedures in their flight manuals, checklists, and training programs. The procedures should clearly identify which pilot is responsible for making these call-outs and which pilot is responsible for deploying the spoilers if they do not automatically or manually deploy. Creating a CRM around this one action. Yeah. And they do. These days, if you ever watch, there's plenty of videos out there on the internet of airline operations in a cockpit. Nick where really likes watching them. They're really cool. High pressure aviation, highly recommend them. They're oh, yeah. phenomenal. He's a, an Air France pilot of 777s, A350s, and 787s. And he does really detailed videos where he points at exactly what they're touching when they touch it. And you can hear all of their callouts. And so one of the, the prominent ones that you'll hear in any cockpit these days and commercial aviation, is once they've landed, somebody will say, spoilers deployed. Checked. So, Yeah, it, it has to become, become like one of those rote memory things. You just know yep. at this moment you're supposed to call spoilers. Right. Well, obviously it wasn't part of their their procedure at that time, so right. can't fault them for that particular aspect. Exactly. They recommend issuing a flight standards information bulletin that requires the use of 1.3 engine pressure ratio as the maximum reverse thrust power for MD-80 series airplanes under wet or slippery runway conditions, except in an emergency in which directional control can be sacrificed for decreased stopping distance. Didn't really help them here anyways. Nope. They recommend requiring principal operations inspectors of all operators of MD-80 series airplanes to review and determine that these operators' flight manuals and training programs contain information on the decrease in rudder effectiveness when reverse thrust power in excess of 1.3 engine pressure ratio is applied. So just making sure that the pilots are actually aware of why that 1.3 exists. That beyond that, they lose rudder and horizontal stabilizer control. Steering. Yes. Mm -hmm. They recommend all Part 121 and 135 operators require the use of automatic brakes, if available and operative, for landings during wet, slippery, or high crosswind conditions, and verify that these operators include these procedures in their flight manuals, checklists, and training programs. Using the auto brakes. Yeah. If you have them available, especially when you have a really tricky landing. Why coming, not use them? Absolutely, you should use them. You, you get already a lot of workloads. So yep. Well. The airplanes are really smart about those braking systems. They can really do it for you. 
This one's kind of a long one. Oh boy, buckle up. They recommend establishing a joint government industry working group to address, understand, and develop effective operational strategies and guidance to reduce thunderstorm penetrations and verify that these strategies and guidance materials are incorporated into air carrier flight manuals and training programs as the strategies become available. The working group should focus its efforts on all facets of the airspace system, including ground and cockpit-based solutions. The near-term goal of the working group should be to establish clear and objective criteria to facilitate recognition of cues associated with severe convective activity and guidance to improve flight crew decision-making. I think that was one of the really big things that came from this. Was yes. Can you I break it down to, like, stupid terminology? Don't the one fly that into I understand a storm? The one I understand? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, if there is a storm, don't fly through it. Yeah, it's... I, I mean, it. it's very simple, but use all methods. I mean, they got to come up with a standard because obviously it sounds like there wasn't a standard. And right. they're saying we need to come up with a better standard to understand because obviously the NASA uh, and MIT uh, study have proven that everyone's doing it. Whatever, yeah. you know, that's a free-for-all. <clears throat> Granted, you know, they're, they're still progressing, you know, amazingly in 99. seems like yesterday to me, but it's been a while. Yeah. And and they're still progressing and understanding what to do with the weather. And I think that there's this invincibility factor that came in with a larger airplane with better technology. And pilots probably believed, yeah, I've got all the tools to go through. But the reality is Mother Nature will always win. So that's basically what they're saying is that let's not forget that even though we have great airplanes that can actually handle a lot, there are still limits and we are tending to forget that there are limits. And I believe that that's what this recommendation was really about. Because you can't really push the human limit. <laughs> you can push the airplane limit, sure, but you can't push the human limit. So yeah. I'm wondering if that airplane flown correctly would have been safely on the ground. Although there is, maybe you know, there is still a chance because it came in 20 knots fast, right? Which was not a bad call considering if considering a wind shear. So you're, yeah. you're making up with the wind shear. Yep. You know the runway. We haven't talked about the length of the runway, but I think mm-hmm. it was kind of short. Yeah. So you know, again, what is where are the limits? I I, I strongly believe that they were working on on what that statement says is like come up, let's come up with a with a more a, you know uh concrete explicit explicit yep answer to what we should and should not do in adverse weather and and i believe that they probably made some progress in that there was something in the mayday episode said where one of the american airlines operational whoever was like, yeah, our pilots shouldn't be flying into a terminal area blanketed by storms. Okay, great. That's a very qualitative statement. Right. right. Give me numbers. Yep. Exactly, because pilots like numbers. Yeah, we, we do fly. I'm a pilot, too. We do fly by the seat of our pants in certain cases, but a lot of the time, especially on the bigger airplanes, numbers really do mean a lot. They do. I mean, is, is there a storm within five miles, ten miles, one mile? Like, give me quantitative yes or no, it fulfills this qualification. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and all these numbers do matter. I mean, you could kind of see how in this instance, even from our wind shear in our microburst series, how actually things had started to develop. They had the sensors, but they also had a lot more numbers to work with in this case because they had the RVR number yeah. specifically given to them. They had the crosswind components. They had the wind shear alert numbers. They yep. had the exact numbers of the wind at this airport. I mean, they had all of the information that they really could have used in a lot of those microburst accidents we talked about. Actually, and you're talking about those numbers, which is interesting because there was a bit of a disagreement between the pilots. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they were working off memory, obviously. Right. You don't have time to go look it up, I imagine, at that moment when you're landing. But they went by memory 
And unfortunately, that's where they disagreed a little bit. But it wasn't an argument. It was just a, a question between them. Like, okay, right. who's right? Who has it right? And unfortunately, perhaps they should have taken the safer approach, which, you know, would have basically told them, go around, don't do it. Right? Yep. Because so I, I have a question for you working in commercial aviation. Not I, that you're a pilot for that. But A, is there some kind of anything on the screens indicating what your crosswind component is so you yourself are not having to calculate it? Yes. Sweet. There is. Go Modern on. airplane. I'm not 100% sure that the, that MD-80 had it at that time. No, but I'm saying The new airplanes today. do have it. Right. Okay. They have, well, thank They did say that it had a wind shear sensor on the It had plane. a wind shear sensor, but, but I don't know about crosswind. And then my other question is talking about all these things having to know what your limits are. Does any of that get displayed? So like they were saying No, oh. not the limits. Oh, okay. So they're still Not that I know again. You know, That's it, only, not, I you know, I from what I remember, for what I know, and I don't know everything by far. You know, no, how to they fix do the not toilet. they do not yeah. Let's talk about what's important in that airplane, that toilet. Yep. <laughs> the, I don't believe that there are, the, I mean, there could be a placard. They do have placards. Okay. But I'm not talking about, you know, the digital display telling you at yeah. some point explicitly with a warning saying, hey, we are exceeding limits. In this particular case, I know that's, there, there are certain things, yes, it will warn you, you know, obviously, if we're talking angle of attack, if we're talking... No, but you know, I mean, speed, like, But I'm talking something that is a calculated that you need to know. You're, you're reaching your limit of crosswind, and it should, it won't display. Because, again, like you said, like every carrier is a little different, and so yeah. they don't really do that. But there might be a placard that is readily visible. Now, the pilot might need to either calculate it, or like I said, it might be displayed, and they need to read and interpret so, uh, you, you know, and, and again, when you get to an approach period, that's a high stress level for pilots. It's oh, a yeah. high right. workload. And this doesn't have the crosswind component, but this is landing performance per certain configurations. And this is coming out of one of the operations manuals that we have, one of the quick reference manuals we have. Airbus? Yeah, for the baby bus. Sure. But the, if you look in a lot, and well, if you look in the flight manual for any aircraft, actually, it'll give you the chart. For crosswind component, it'll give you the performance data for any of that. I mean, this is talking GA all the way to commercial aviation. Sure, sure. And again, when you're on an approach, you don't pull out the QRH to get right. the information. No. That's why they went by memory, which is, it's, yeah. in theory, they would love to have pilots memorize everything. And obviously, Yeah, but there's too, limitations to that. Yes. The pilots obviously did not agree with their memory. Right. You know, you would have thought the more experienced pilot would have information correct because he's been doing it for a long time and it just kind of drilled in. The younger pilot had just jumped in the airplane, so he probably reviewed the material more recently. Yeah. Which one's right? Right, exactly. Yeah, that's true. The next one's much to your point that you were making earlier about weather and such. They recommend incorporating at all air traffic control facilities a near real-time color weather radar display that shows detailed precipitation intensities. This display could be incorporated by configuring existing and planned terminal Doppler weather radar or weather systems processor systems with this capability or by procuring within one year a commercial computer weather program currently available through the internet or existing standalone computer hardware that displays the closest single site weather surveillance radar 1988 doppler data or regional mosaic images you know i remember that i remember mm -hmm. when they gave a one-year i actually remember yep gosh i was alive and working in aviation <laughs> in 1999 yeah you know? and i do remember 
that yep. they came out and they said that one year to implement all this new radar because it made actually some pretty important news in, in the aviation world and it was kind of a it's a big deal. It seems like an important thing to have when there are so many places on Earth where the weather can change so fast. Especially in the United States, like anywhere in Tornado Alley. Yeah, and I mean, the thunderstorms we get are just out of this world severe compared to some places on Earth. And they get worse every year. And so it's important to have that kind of stuff where you can really get as close to real-time data as you can about weather when you have aircraft that are approaching and they have mere minutes to make it to the ground. You know, you can actually give them minute-by-minute basically data about what Mm -hmm. the weather is actually doing at the runway. And then the other aspect of this, which we've talked about before, but was not directly mentioned with this, is the relationship between the National Weather Service, NOAA, and the FAA, Air Traffic Control, Titans. Right. They work so closely together. Yep. They have to. It's an ongoing, very continuous, yeah, close working relationship. They recommend maintaining at least a 48-hour archive of one-minute runway visual range data. So... Keep all that data of the RVR for up to 48 hours. And these days, that's a much easier thing to do. Yes. Just have a camera out there. CCTV it. That, and they have single, it's a single point of data. You can record a single point of data forever on very little memory these days. Oh, I forgot to mention it. This FDR had like 56 hours of data on it or some crap like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's phenomenal. That was probably advanced for the time. Yeah. Yeah. Probably very advanced. It was never really applicable, but I just want to call that out there because that's cool. Most only do 25 hours. Yep. They recommend amending 14 Code of Federal Regulations, Part 139.319J, to require a minimum aircraft rescue and firefighting staffing level that would allow exterior firefighting and rapid entry into an airplane to perform interior firefighting and rescue of passengers and crew members. I wonder if that happened. I don't know, but I imagine they had to have come up with something. I forget I can look this There's, it's pretty strict regulations about the level of everything you have for rescue operations, depending on the size of operation you expect to have at any given time at an airport. Which one was that? What recommendation number? Mm, A-01-65, which tells you that that is the, if you've never read the actual number for these recommendations, that means that that is the 65th recommendation that the NTSB made in 2001. A-01-65. The FAA does not plan to take the recommended action. Okay. They probably did a, a there's analysis. Prob- yeah, well, and there's probably a different data point they use. There's probably a different way that they went about doing basically the same thing. They don't necessarily have to fulfill one recommendation for something very similar to happen. And basically they may say, well, per the size of operation you have, you need to have X amount of equipment and the staffing level to use said equipment during all times of operation. And by upping the level of equipment they have, they upped the level of staff required, and therefore they upped the level of... Oh, I see. So, that, so that, even though it may not have been that they upped the staff required... It's automatic by... It may be automatic by, yeah, by changing... That makes a good point. That's a very good point that you're making. They recommend evaluating crash detection and location technologies. Select the most promising candidates for ensuring that emergency responders could expeditiously arrive at an accident scene and implement a requirement to install and use the equipment. So... Wow, what kind of equipment? Yeah, yeah like, exactly. I've never that's, heard of that. This I mean, is one no, of those things okay. to me that's kind of out there. That's why I brought it up. I mean, yeah, you have an ELT. But talk about Tenerife, for example. Yeah, How long exactly. did it take to, for them to figure out there was an actual accident out there? Yeah, it took a while. They weren't sure. I mean, and, they couldn't and see again, it. I'm not blaming anybody or anything. I mean, no. I, I'm just wondering what kind of equipment 
would detect a crash and tell you where it is. Right. The weird things that happen in aviation, because we've talked about this a few times on the podcast, is where it takes them a while to find the airplane, even though it's right next to the runway. Because sometimes they go down a hill into the trees. Yeah. Can't see it. No idea. They can't find it. So it's one of those things where they want a better way to find these things. But I don't know really what that would entail. I mean, just go get a drink. In right. The, water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. the 737 the other day. Yeah. The the overrun, the uh-huh. ergo. Uh-huh. I know. I saw. Yep. Thirsty airplane. Yes, absolutely. That actually, that particular recommendation is is quite interesting because as of right now, I'm not 100% sure if they were able to do something. Maybe it is more like a procedural system. It's like, okay, if the airplane is, you suspect it it has crashed, then you you need to have a certain system that you go by. Maybe you can. The only thing that I could think is like, You'd have to really advance the technology on an ELT, but when an ELT activates, wow. then much in the same way you can use like a find my iPhone or find my item with your an AirTag where it tells you exactly how far well, it away. Is. Now it is. It is? Yes. Now we have the new LTs actually send out a GPS locator. Right. So then you First can First of all, it takes 45 it, right? seconds. I mean, it, yeah. they do that, but here's the problem with that system is it sends a message via satellite to the Air Force, and the Air Force then the right. Then the Air Force gets a hold of the air traffic controller and or whatever. If, right. it, if, it, if it says, oh, okay, it's at an airport. And generally, if it's at an airport, a lot of the time, amazingly, the Air Force considers that a false message yeah, as a fair. inadvertent, you know, deployment of the ELT, which ELT, happens all yep. the time. So I can see where that could also have its flaws. Or right. uh, they're uh, talking they want a real time obviously for the emergency responders to be able to find it immediately. Cameras that can detect uh, fires. Yep. But again, a jet engine taking off, good lord. They can set yeah. off they can set off a fire suppression system in a hangar. Yeah. Just by doing <laughs> idle run. And I know that because it happened. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. Airplane running idle outside, pointed at the cam- infrared camera. Next thing you know, in a hangar, the fire suppression system just goes completely off. Yep, yep. I believe and somebody it. has to clean it. Not me, because <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't in my service. It wasn't uh, in my airport. But yes, it is. Happening. It happens. Yeah, I've heard of that happening before. So infrared cameras out. Well, it could be handy, but it, it's pointing in the right direction and interpret it correctly. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know firefighters use it now to, they use infrared and thermal cameras now just mm-hmm. to go like in a building to yeah. find any remaining fire sources or people. Right. But again, it's used in the right environment, yep. with the right crew, with the right training. Yep. And, you know, in, in an airport, I mean... Here's the thing. Well, I mean, in that case, maybe if there was some sort of fire, some sort of, you know, and they can use, because obviously it sees through fog, clouds, whatever it is. Yep. But again, well, actually a good infrared camera can really show everything. But again, it goes off the embankment. There's no fire. Exactly. The infrared camera's out of the, it's, it's, I'm, I am really curious. That might yep. be something we'll have to look up and see if they came up with a great system because yeah. I, I will admit that is something i do not know if yep. you are listening and are a firefighter at an airport please let us know yeah very very interesting point and i actually kind of understand where that's becoming a point that they need to be approached because any second i mean every moment is is important on a rescue and uh like you said and many of the crashes a small delay could have cost yeah people. can cost lives can cost a lot of time wow that's a very interesting they recommend defining detailed parameters for a stabilized approach. Develop detailed criteria indicating when a missed approach should be performed and ensure that all 14 Code of Regulations for Part 121 and 135 carriers include this information in their flight manuals and training programs. So 
when to do a missed approach. It's a really important thing because they never made that decision because they just couldn't decide if it was just out of range or not. It was. It was it very was. out of range, it turns out. But It was out of range for like a while. Way out of their limits, and they should have gone around way before that. But still, that needed to be clear. They needed to have a clear... Numbers. So they don't even have to... Correct. So their fatigued brain don't, doesn't even have to try to work on the everything. There's just a, a point in time where they know limit reached. Detailed, quantifiable parameters. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And I agree with that. They recommend providing additional personnel to accomplish direct oversight of American Airlines flight training and flight operations and include the principal operations inspector for American in decisions regarding where these personnel are to be placed. This is really looking at the oversight piece by the FAA as well as the airline itself, how the oversight piece is being done to make sure that the operation is happening safely. They add in a note. In addition, the safety board reiterates the following recommendation to the Federal Aviation Administration. They recommend establishing within two years scientifically based hours of service regulations and set limits on hours of service, provide predictable work and rest schedules, and consider circadian rhythms and human sleep and rest requirements. This, this is was, a thing. This was a previous recommendation, and they're bringing it back up. It seems like to be a pretty constant problem for a long time. Yep. Like, hey, you can't have people work, like, 16, 18-hour shifts. And, and expect like, them to still expect function. Them, yeah, expect them to be able to do their jobs hey, properly. For right. all of you truckers, <clears throat> listen to this. How many yeah. hours can you drive in one day? Right. When are you considered past your prime of having to deal with the worst of circumstances? Small announcement. I'm not more than anything. I would say thank you very much to all truckers out there. Yes. You, you, what you do is, is very valuable, and I really appreciate it. Agreed. Thank you. And there are actually quite a few of you listening. We have... A lot of you. Well, thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Yep. And that was recommended in 1999, actually. So about the time of this accident is when this recommendation came to be. So we were already working on this. They had already recommended it and said, hey, we really need to set standards for when can you expect the human brain basically to stop functioning at full capacity for a critical phase of flight. Right. Well, and it really did work against them because it, it was at the end of a long day and they had one of the most difficult yep. approaches, which was kind of throwing them, okay, are we good? Are we not? And right. That's, I think that's basically one of the big things that also changed in aviation is they try to push more that if in doubt, you know, go around. Yep. You know, that's just that came out a little bit later. And, I, you know, we're all guilty of making those calls as pilots. We, we just sometimes say, you know, push ourselves a little bit. But right. We should live more by that idea of when in doubt, go around, you know, but... Uh, yep. So I don't know what the length of the runway was previously. That's all the recommendations I'm doing, by the way. But So we're just going to talk about this briefly. I don't know how long the runway was previously. But what I can tell you just from looking at an aerial view of the map, based on the description of the things that they hit and where they ended up, I can tell you for a fact... For that right, this, right? Yes, for right. I can tell you that for a fact that the departure end of this runway has changed, and this runway is more than likely much longer. Because if you look at this, they went, first of all, through a set of tubes that extended past the end of the runway. They were literally like pipes. Well, and those, and are, I think those they were, were supporting the lights, I think, because I saw the pictures. And so those are supporting the... Yeah. the and, and as a matter of fact, it looks like the tail of the airplane really right. got stuck underneath it, unfortunately. Right. So they went through that. They then... Dropped into an embankment after going through a rock pile. They went down into a floodplain that was set 15 feet lower. Yeah. And 
they went through the approach lights. The approach lights, of course, are still there. But what is not there is the rock embankment immediately after the runway. If they had gone as far as they did after this accident, they would have been in, in the, the Arkansas, Arkansas River. River. Here's the picture from that yeah, time. It we're, changed a lot. We're looking at the satellite that Nick brought up, and then I brought up a picture. And yes, you can definitely see the difference. So right now, the runway is 8,250 feet approximately. Mm-hmm. And the extension, and on the satellite picture, maybe I'm wrong, it looks like they have one of those arresting, maybe, or maybe that's just a lead-in. Uh, I really can't tell, to be E-mask. honest, in this yeah. case. Yeah. I don't know if be, that's E-mask. It could very well be because of that. They might have they might have added it. But anyway. It might be E-mask because of the fact that they have a river right there, but they do have a runway and safety area built in. So look at the difference, uh, Miranda. And you can see oh, where, yeah. you know, it, it is fairly noticeable, the difference. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the data picture and the current. So. They, it looks like they leveled it out. It is. Now, I'm looking at the runway and safety area, and I, it's always hard to tell on Google Maps if you can see the underlying grid or not, but I think that EMAS might be there. It would make sense since they have a river right there, yeah, just in an absolute worst-case scenario. They don't want planes going like, straight through into the river. Right. We, we don't need more thirsty planes. Nope. No more thirsty planes. But also, they put in such a big runway and safety area that's at level with the runway that it's not a big deal if it goes beyond too much. There's also a pretty significant one on runway four left. Yes. I think that one might be marginally closer to the river. Actually, I think the approach lighting systems for both extends into the river. They do, yes. Anyway. Oh, yeah, I might have found a picture that shows the difference. Hang on a second. Here's the picture where it shows at that time. And at this time. Yeah. The runway definitely changed in length. I would say it's definitely longer. But also, it definitely has a different runway and safety area. The embankment has changed Although, quite a bit. Although, would oh, that yeah. have really helped them? It's hard to say because, I mean, it the, might the not amount of damage there is. It, this this image that you found does say that EMAS was installed. If EMAS was there. There you go. So the EMAS would have saved them in this case. Hands down. For sure. EMAS but, was also added to the other end of the runway. Mm-hmm. For runway 22 left, and they added an overrun area extension on both sides. Which is great. And the other thing is since they flattened it out past the end of the runway, the primary thing that that will do is it prevented the airplane from dropping into the embankment well, the way that it did. broke into several parts. Right, broke into several parts because of that, and it didn't go through so much equipment Stuff, on yeah. the way. Yeah, All right. you're right. EMAS installed, and uh... can so you there send you go. A, can you send us that website? Yes. So, that was American Airlines flight, I don't remember, 142. Oh, 1420. I did that 1420. 1420. I tried. I tried. Thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it. Thank you, Al, for being here. Hey, thank you very much for having me. This is it's always good to have Al on. Al brings good perspective. <laughs> yeah, he does. No. Do we want to do those questions? Uh, so, the first one's from Lieutenant Spock. It's from episode 152, which came out this last week and he goes so there i was <laughs> i had just there finished learning the cessna 182 oh i know that airplane and learned it <laughs> takes approximately 16 cranks in our school's only complex high performance plane to manually lower the gear in the event of the electrical hydraulic pump failure it's not easy but definitely not difficult to accomplish this task safely to do what again the crank to lower the manually gear. crank the gear down the gear to lower the gear. If you have oh, an it's RG. A, it's not a, it's a pump. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the crank, the pump handle. The pump the, handle. Yes. Sorry. I, I yeah. was thinking, you know, okay. No. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. 
The cockpit handle simply pressurizes the hydraulic extension. Correct. Yep. For reference, Al owns a 182. Yes. Well, that's a retractable non- he's talking about. I know. And I worked yeah. on him a lot. He does not have an RG. I don't no, have an No retractable. No, my my, my is. question is, which aircraft require more than 50 or 60 pumps to lower the gear safely? All righty, let's go. <laughs> All of them. My- All righty. TBM. Approximately 60 to 65. The Beechcraft, it actually is a crank that you turn with your right hand. Let me see if I remember, but it's definitely more than that. I believe it's in the range of the 40, 50. There is actually a number that we like to use. I can't remember the number, but it's definitely more than that. Well, he keeps going, so... Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. So, <laughs> that's okay. Modern, do, do we want to edit I this? Mean, that's the, that's yeah. the answer to that question. But modern airliners use a gravity drop system, like you said in the episode. And old bombers had cranks to manually lower the gear, but they required a lot of muscle power rather than a lot of mechanical travel. The nice thing is that they always have a bombardier. They had a gunner that could be out there. Yeah. yeah, an extra person. <laughs> yeah. And they were young. Well, he, yeah. spe- he specifically mentions. Yeah, the Beechcraft Bonanza. Banana. Banana. Needs 50. And the Queen Air requires somewhere around 40 to 45, if I remember correctly. There you go. And then he says, as always, love the show. Keep your speed up. Thanks. Yeah. The thousands that you were talking about on mm-hmm. the episode that I, I heard mm-hmm. on the way out here. And that was somewhere in probably in Utah or wherever. Yeah. Might be a bit of an exaggeration, but sure. I do know Hundreds. that, that you're, when you're talking, you know, the big one, like B-29s. Or yeah. That, that, that yeah. you know, had the gunner that was 22 years old or yep. maybe 19, <laughs> full of testosterone. Yeah, that took a lot. <laughs> yeah. That, that took a going. lot. Yep. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, there's definitely a variance. Most of them are going to be in the 50 to 60 mm-hmm. range of, except for, you know, the 182. And I could. Great airplane. Love flying the 182RG. I've flown it quite a bit. I've mm-hmm. worked on him. I think I like him. It is definitely requires less because initially it's a gravity. Right. When you first release the locks, it's a gravity down. Then you're just pumping the gear actually up. To yeah. lock. The it's main gear lock. up, yeah. which is, you know, it's funny, but they just did, did go all the way down. If you guys have never seen it, they're the most ungodly looking. Yeah, they are. But, they're just dangly. <laughs> and then you bring them up. As long as you have hydraulic, if you lost all hydraulic fluid, guess what? You're belly landing. But... Yeah. I think I'd love we, to meet uh, Captain Spa. Lieutenant. Yeah. Lieutenant Spa. Lieutenant Spa. Lieutenant Spa. I think you're not a captain yet. I think we should read the next one because yes. I don't know the answer. Yeah. Okay. So this one's from Andrew, our turbo trucker friend. Turbo trucker. Yes. This is from one of our episodes on the pedostatic system. It was, he said specifically episode 106, but in the question, he says multiple episodes. So, sure. Hey guys, this actually pertains to a few episodes. The Air France flight, he says, I think episode 37 as well. And in both cases, the pedostatic system was blocked and non-functional. And the episode that he's talking about, uh, which I think was Aero Peru. Was that Aero Peru or? Bergenair. Bergenair. It wasn't Bergenair. Because Bergenair, we didn't do it that long ago. In any case. It was episode 106. Anyway. Okay. Nick mentioned that the stick shaker activated, and at least it seems that in both cases, it was correct. But my question is, with the pedo system disabled, how do the plane systems know the plane is traveling too slow to even activate the stick shaker? That's a good question. I've always assumed the stick shaker is based off of airspeed readings, but in both cases, where the airspeed readings were non-functional, it seems the stick shaker can still work. So what criteria are used to activate the stick shaker? It depends on the airplane, that's for sure. Certain aircraft have their own sensors for this, especially smaller aircraft, but 
it is true that some airplanes do use the pitot-static system to calculate when stall speed is approaching. However, there are usually other sensors for this. I'm sure you have a lot more to go with that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Again, I'm sorry. Like the last question that I jumped in and I nope, have all the answers. I'm Italian. I talk a lot. Okay. We know. By the way, Nick is Italian too. If you yes. know. If you Since I started a podcast. Yeah. So, Yes. You know, on, on modern airplanes, it's not the airspeed that will give you a stall warning. That is only one of the component, but not the major. Don't forget, angle of attack. Yes. The angle of attack, because an airplane can stall at any speed and any angle. Don't ever forget this. What does it mean? It's a computed information that the, it feeds to the stick shaker. The stick shaker is not a direct, like on my 182, there is a little vein on the wing. When you reach a certain angle of attack, that vein flips and just my alarm goes off. Right. My horn goes off. The only thing you have even remotely close to a stick shaker on small GA airplanes is buffeting. Buffeting. <laughs> sure. So just think of it in these terms. In my 182, I could be going far faster than my stall speed and still stall. Because if I'm on unloaded, so I'm, I, I have, say, 2G loading because I'm turning, you know, at 60 degrees, and I slow the airplane far higher than what is my stall speed published. It will be published for that, but it's the one that shows in the, in the airspeed or my stall warning goes off, it will stall. Right. So the same thing goes with the airliners. Absolutely. They could be in a turn, you know, and if you only use the airspeed indicator to give you a stall indication, it will, can be incorrect. It's a computer. We have air data modules. We have other features that use that. The angle of attack indicator is actually sometimes one of the better indicator because it, it, it truly gives you which way direction the airplane's flying, which indication, is, sorry, what is the direction of the air going. But again, it does not take into account the loading of the airplane. So if you're turning, you know, so for example. So it is always a computer and the airplane does the best. And again, here's the problem. When the air data is compromised by either being blocked by ice or any other reason, mm -hmm. yes, that affects that. But don't forget, most airplanes have a redundant, if not a uh, triplicate system. Therefore, for the most part, Smart airplanes, some of the newer ones, will not give an erroneous indication. So, for example, Air France. I was going to say Air France 447 is what he's talking about. Yeah, amazingly, was given the right indication. Yes. All along. The real unfortunate part is that the crew just did not recognize it. That was mm -hmm. truly unfortunate that they stalled an airplane for 35,000 feet. Right. They could yep. have fixed it by just pushing the nose over. But, again, I wasn't in the cockpit. I wasn't the one looking at the data, so I, I'm not going to be able to judge their, their reactions and actions. It's, it's really just unfortunate that that indication was correct. Yep. Yeah. Well, and in most cases in like GA aircraft, they literally have a very simple stall warning system with its own sensor on the wing. And you have to test it during your pre-flight too, usually. Yep. And it's on most airplanes, it's just a small tab. On some, it's also a separate pressure vane. Yeah, now the air angle of attack. So the AOA sensors are coming out in the general aviation. Yeah. Lot. I'm, yeah. I don't have one on my airplane. I mean, it's old. And yeah. I don't feel like I need it right now. I tend to try to fly on the safe side of airspeed and all that. Yeah. Though I like to fly into short field, my margins are pretty high. Not to say that I couldn't use it, but... Again, the AOAs become AOA sensors are becoming a lot prevalent. And the really funny thing is that they they used to have sensors themselves for AOA, but now all the modern technology does not need sensors. It uses airspeed, it uses direction of flight, 
and so many other things. And they can actually compute an AOA, which is kind of fascinating yep. in some of the brand new technology. Well, in these days, we can do so much even with just GPS data because GPS altitude and location are so accurate. It can even predict, you know, AOA based on GPS altitude and the attitude of the airplane. Yes. It's, so it's, a, again, computer. Computed uh, information, and uh, thank you for that. We could talk forever. I got to tell you. <laughs> yeah, of course. Don't have a come and, and talk to me about aviation because <laughs> I'll tell you things that I don't know. We talk about it every week because I like to talk about it. Yep. All right. All right. Well, there we go. Thank thanks. you, everyone, for joining us. Thanks. Yes. Thanks again to Al. No, thank you guys. Yeah. For in introducing my low level of information. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed. Uh, thank you to all our patrons. We appreciate you. We like now have an editor because you guys contribute every month. So we, I keep appreciate it. And this is the part of the episode where I give you the weekly Patreon plug. Yes. Where it's like, please check out the Patreon. We have like literally thousands of hours of extra content so besides much. just our episodes that you can check out. So much so, extra stuff. Yeah. I mean, just go and check it out and see. I mean, Miranda Sodes, post episodes, blooper reels. So much stuff. Some of those blooper reels are quality content. They're, they're pretty good. <laughs> probably did some good ones today with the dogs. Oh yeah. my gosh. <laughs> yep. Sorry, I brought my dog. No. <laughs> Generally really it actually nice, worked out. I okay. think Milo really wants to play with her and she's tired. Yeah. Yeah, it was still calmer like, than I thought it would be, to be honest. Yeah. I thought Milo would be worse. So, anyway, thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.